Turn, if you would, to the fifth chapter of the book of Matthew. Well, I did get off the hook. My daughter and I were supposed to audition for another play tomorrow night, but she decided to do a different one, so at least for a few weeks I'm off the hook. We are working our way through the book of Matthew. We've gotten to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the book of Matthew. It is the longest sermon that we have recorded coming directly from the words of Jesus Christ. So we started it several weeks ago, and we will be in it for several more weeks. Starting in verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This first part is known as the Beatitudes. If you take the word blessed and put it in Latin, you end up somewhere around Beatitude. It is the characteristics that God wants to see in his children, in the citizens of the kingdom. If you remember, Jesus began by preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And these are the characteristics of those people who are in the kingdom. And we began with the discussion of, if I were going to ask you what characteristics you'd want to see in your children, what would they be? Or your grandchildren? Or your great-grandchildren? It probably wouldn't look like this list. He begins with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize that they can't do it on their own. And the amazing thing is that once you recognize you can't do it on your own, the door to the kingdom opens and you will in fact receive the kingdom of heaven. From there we go, blessed are they that mourn. Once you realize that your sin has separated you from a holy God, you mourn over the fact that you are consumed with sin and you want comfort for that. And Christ gives us that by giving us forgiveness for the sins. And then last week we talked about meekness. And it's interesting because I made it through about half the lesson. I really thought about continuing on meekness this week, but I just thought it would wear you out too much. <laughs> when I am preparing a lesson, I usually don't go back to my previous lessons and look at my notes. To me, that's kind of cheating. But it is interesting because I still do have them. And I did the book of Matthew 12 years ago, something like that, and it was 60-something lessons or something, and the lesson that I had the most notes about was blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, because it is so counter to what we are taught in our world today. I mean, it's just totally different. I mean, the world today says... You're an autonomous human being. You have to stand up for yourself. You have to do what you want to do. You've got to be strong. 
And meek is gentle and humble, and it is alien to what our culture believes. And we kind of touched on it. There was lots more that could be talked about. One of the Puritan writers that I've been reading, he had a list of 16 ways to improve your meekness. (laughs) The Puritan writers love lists. I guess that's why I like them. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who are humble and gentle. Having acknowledged the fact I cannot do it on my own, having acknowledged the fact that I am a sinner, that should produce humility in us. If your salvation produces pride in you, look at me, I'm on God's side, or look at me, God's on my side. If your salvation produces pride in you, you probably don't have salvation. Just an observation. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Which brings us to today's lesson. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They shall be filled. What does this mean? I mean, we started with blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor carries with it the idea of poverty, which carries with it the idea of being hungry, Well, if we're hungry for something, then something needs to fill that hunger. And the thing that ought to fill that hunger is a hunger and thirst after righteousness. Having recognized, having mourned, having acknowledged the fact that we are humble and gentle because of what God has done for us, we should strive after something, and that something is righteousness. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to answer a couple of questions. What does it mean to hunger and thirst after anything? What is it? What is righteousness? What does that word mean to us? I mean, it's not something that we just normally use in our everyday language. And then what does it mean to be truly satisfied with the righteousness that Christ, that God gives us? So, What does it mean to hunger and thirst? You know, we have some vague idea, vague idea, because we live in a very affluent society. We have a vague idea about what it means to be physically hungry or thirsty. To us, being hungry means we missed a meal. To us, being thirsty means I didn't have a glass of water and I missed it. We live in an affluent society. We have lots of food. We have lots of water. In fact, one of the bigger problems in our society is we have too much stuff. And it has produced an obesity epidemic. More about that in just a moment. It is interesting to me, though. I'm always amazed talking with the people in this class because of the different experiences that y'all have had. I mean, I'm. didn't Ted talk about y'all last week? That that was a good theological word? I'm just doing what the pastor tells me to do. I'm sure there are some of you who actually have experienced true hunger or true thirst at some point of your life. I mean, you read stories about people who were in horrible disasters, who suffered tremendously, But you read about people's need for food, 
and you begin to realize the intensity of the drive that someone who does not have food and water will do, what they'll do to obtain their food and their water. I remember reading a, um, a autobiography of someone who was in a concentration camp. And he talks about the fact that your desire for food begins to override everything else in life. He says, if you put the prisoners here, and you had over there a beautiful naked woman, and on the other side of the woman was the food, they would crush the woman to death in their desire to get to the food. Because that is the intensity of the desire of someone who is truly Hungry for physical food. But we're not talking physical food here. We're talking hungering and thirsting after righteousness. At its most basic definition, righteousness is right standing before God. The prophets in the Old Testament used the imagery of a plumb line. You know what a plumb line is? A string with a weight And the amazing thing about it is you hang it and that weight is always going to point straight down. And you can use that as the standard to measure whether a wall is straight up and down, whether something you're building is straight up and down, because it is the standard by which everything else is judged. The righteousness of God is the standard by which all behavior in life is judged. So what does it mean to hunger and thirst after righteousness? What does it mean to have an intensity that a starving person would have for food? What does it mean to have that level of intensity in the pursuit of righteousness? And why don't we have it? I mean, we hunger and thirst after a lot of things in life. We hunger and thirst after position, power, comfort, ease, a good night's sleep, whatever. We hunger and thirst after a lot of different things. And in fact, when we hunger and thirst after something more than God wants us to, that is the definition of lust. We are wanting more than what God would have us to have. I mean, if I lust after food, then I become a glutton, which is discussed in the scripture as being a sin. If I lust after sex, we have discussions about that. If I lust after power, if I lust after anything beyond the level that God would have me to, it becomes sin. But more than that, it becomes a distraction. Because what prevents us from pursuing the things of God is our pursuit of something else. Whatever that else may be. In fact, that other thing may be perfectly okay in and of itself. But when it takes the place of our pursuit of God, our pursuit of righteousness, it becomes a sin. So we have lots of people who are hungering and thirsting after a lot of different things. But then we have another group of people who are hungering and thirsting after nothing. The scripture talks about apathy. The scripture talks about sloth. 
If you remember back in the medieval period where they liked their list, as I was mentioning earlier, they had the list of the seven deadly sins, one of which was sloth. And there were some writers who wanted to put sloth at the top of the list. You go, that's weird. Pride is on the list. Pride has to be the source of every sin. I mean, that's what caused Satan to rebel against God. He couldn't handle the fact that God was up here and he wasn't. So pride is probably the mother of all sins. But what the medieval writers thought was, if I know there's a sin, and I don't care, then I'm never going to do anything about it. And that is sloth. So I have those people who hunger and thirst after the wrong things, and I have those people who hunger and thirst for nothing because they're just lazy. But we are commanded. We are instructed. No, we are told that those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be blessed. So if this thing that we are supposed to hunger and thirst after is righteousness, it would behoove us to know what righteousness is. Righteousness is right standing before God. Okay, that's easy enough. I'll write that definition down. I'm set. We can leave. But what does that mean? What does it mean? Well, we're going to look at three nice theological words today. They're all in the Bible. They all mean very specific things, and sometimes we get confused about them. It is interesting that we happen to put hit this lesson today as we're starting our sermon series on the Reformation, because a proper understanding of these three words is what caused the Reformation to occur. What does it mean to be righteous? The first one that we're going to look at is the doctrine of justification. The doctrine of justification. If you would, turn to Romans chapter 1. Two years ago, we went through the book of Romans, so we went through this at length. But starting in verse 16 of chapter 1, For I am not ashamed... Of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Today's sermon is going to be about Martin Luther, so I don't want to steal too much of it. But Martin Luther was a monk who read the book of Romans, he studied the book of Romans, and he was consumed by the fact that he knew he wasn't righteous. I mean, let's look at some simple verse. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Let's have a show of hands. How many of you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, every day from the day you were born to the day you die? Not many hands. Martin Luther would go to confession for three hours every day. He would drive the other priest crazy. They would tell him, Martin, come back when you've done some real sin. When you really have something to confess. But he knew that he wasn't righteous. 
And he stared and he stared and he stared at this verse that says, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And he began to understand, studying the scriptures, studying Augustine and the early church fathers, he began to understand that this righteousness is not my righteousness. It's not me rising to the level of behavior that my works are good enough to make me righteous. It is the righteousness of God given to me. The theological term is imputed. The righteousness of Christ, the sinless, perfect sacrifice, the righteousness of Christ is given to me. And I am righteous. Not because I've done every work correctly, but because I have believed in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Justification is a legal term whereby we are declared to be righteous because we have received the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Therefore, God looks at us and he sees the righteousness of Christ. Go back to the Old Testament. And the whole sacrificial system, which was a picture of what Christ was going to do. The people sinned. The animal's throat was slit. The blood covered the altar. And God saw the blood and it covered the sin. And that's what Christ did for us. Justification is a point in time where you accept the finished work of Jesus Christ, and you become righteous in the eyes of God. Very important. Because if you don't understand that, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount will drive you crazy. I mean, let's just say it. It'll drive you crazy. But that's why it begins with blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's is the kingdom of heaven. The doors are open as soon as we acknowledge the fact that we cannot do it on our own. That is justification. Without that, we're in trouble. The second word we're going to look at is sanctification. Sanctification is the process. It is not an act. It is a process whereby we work out in our everyday life the righteousness that Christ has put in us. What does that mean? Well, Romans chapter 6 begins with, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? I mean, I'm saved by grace. I can do anything I want, right? And he says, heck no. Loose translation, but not that loose. It's pretty spot on. No. Because if you have been saved, if you have received the Holy Spirit, if you have received the righteousness of Christ, it's going to work its way out. It's going to demonstrate it. Now, you go to the morgue and there's a dead body. 
Jesus Christ raises the body to life. He did that. He did that in the scripture. Now, this is a real hard question. We have some doctors in the room, but you don't have to be a doctor to answer this question. What's the difference between a dead body and a live body? (laughs) Most of us can tell the difference. You know, a few comas on the side, we'll worry about that later. But a live body breathes. A live body moves. A live body grows. Well, are you telling me, Kyle, that you've got to breathe and you've got to grow and you've got to move before you become alive? No, you can't do that. But once you have become alive, these are the signs and indicators that you are alive. And you begin to take the righteousness of Christ and you work it out in your everyday life. That's why the sixth chapter of the book of Romans talks about presenting your members. Presenting your members for righteousness. That means that hand, that's a member of my body right there, that hand has to learn to do righteous acts. This tongue has to learn to do righteous acts. The righteousness of Christ has been given to me. The Holy Spirit has been given to me. The scripture has been given to me. The community of believers has been given to me to help me be conformed to the image of Christ. So every day I move a little bit farther or I move a little bit back and a little bit, I mean, that's life. That's what life is. It is the process of sanctification. Now, let me tell you how important this is. If you are a good Catholic, and my best friend is a good Catholic, if you are a good Catholic, you believe that you are sanctified, and at the end of your life, if you're not in mortal sin, you will be justified. That's why if you ask a good Catholic who knows what they're talking about, are you saved, they will say, I hope so. Because they are working out their salvation. Now, don't get me confused. Don't get confused. They do believe in the necessity of grace to work this out. They do believe that they have to have the grace of God as administered through the sacraments. They have to have the word of God. They have to have the forgiveness of the... They have to have all of that, but they're doing that so that at the end of their life they can be declared righteous. Because they believe that if I declare a sinner to be righteous, God's lying. I mean, he is, right? I'm declaring you to be something that you're not. Well, except for the fact that Christ just made you righteous. So that is the distinction that we see. So, back to hungering and thirsting. I am hungering and thirsting after the righteousness of Christ being given to me. Because that's the only way I can get anywhere. Remember, I'm... Poor in spirit. Remember, I am mourning for my sin. Remember that I am meek because I realize I can't do it on my own. 
And when I realize that, I know I need somebody else's righteousness. And that is the righteousness of Christ. So I hunger and thirst after the righteousness of Christ being given to me. But more than that, I hunger and thirst for every day of my life to work that out. Today. Tomorrow, the next day, I look at the righteousness of Christ and I go, I want to do that. What does that look like? Well, it looks like studying the scripture. Finding what the mind of Christ is. What does God require of us? I told you a couple of weeks ago, reading a uh, lesson by uh, Oswald Chambers about the Sermon on the Mount. And he uses this picture that I really liked is that, you know, you study the scripture and you study the scripture and that's the first time you learn it. And then you're going through life and all of a sudden you're in a situation and that scripture applies to that situation. And that's the second time you learn it. And that's where you really learn it. Or you don't and you just ignore it and you didn't really learn it in the first place. We study the scripture more and more and more so that when we get into those situations, we will know what the righteousness of God requires of us. It's not a club to beat us over the head with. It is a way of life marked by obedience to the creator of the universe. The guy who created the universe and knows how it works says, do things this way. Shouldn't we do things that way? Wouldn't that make sense to do it the way that he asks us to? And here's the question, the whole lesson right here. What prevents us from hungering and thirsting after that righteousness. I mean, simple illustration. You go into a hotel room. I'm on a business trip. I go into a hotel room. There's a TV. And there's a Gideon Bible. Van is involved with the Gideons. Great program. Question. Which do I look at? You'd better not answer that question. Because I know and you know what the answer is. What is it that prevents us from hungering and thirsting after righteousness? Ourselves, the distractions of this world. We'll have a whole lesson sometime next year on the parable of the sower and the seeds. You remember it? He walks around, he throws the seed. Some of it falls on the, on the sidewalk, never going to grow. Some of it goes on the very hard, shallow, never going to grow. Some of it falls into the pretty good ground. It starts growing, but the thorns grow up and just choke the life out of it. And it tells us that those thorns are the worries and cares of this world. The difference between this lesson and last week's lesson, this lesson at least sounds pretty good. Being meek doesn't sound that good. Hungering and thirst after righteousness sounds good. But just like last week's lesson, it is alien to the world in which we live. It just is. 
We hunger and thirst after a lot of different things. But oftentimes it is not the righteousness of Christ. So we talked about two words, justification, that is God's declaration that we are righteous because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Sanctification, which is the process whereby we work that out in our everyday life, and that is, that is the Christian life. Just get used to it. That is the Christian life. The third big word we want to look at is glorification. You see... I am an unregenerate pagan, and I am justified. I am declared righteous before God. But the reality is, I still have all those bad habits. I still have that sin nature that's sitting there going, eh, why don't you do this, why don't you do that? So sanctification is the working out of that in everyday life. But someday I'm going to die, and I'm going to enter paradise, and the last remnant of that sin nature will be removed from my being. And at that point, I will be righteous because of the work that has been done by Jesus Christ in my life. That is what we really hunger and thirst for. We hunger and thirst to be declared righteous. Because that's the only way we can enter the presence of a holy God. We hunger and thirst to actually be righteous in this world, but we acknowledge the fact that it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to do the right thing. Sometimes it's difficult to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil, to overcome the temptations of this world. But we long for a time when that struggle will be no more. And we will be glorified. Now it's interesting, if you look at theology through history, there was, is, and will continue to be a movement that believes that when I am declared righteous, I no longer sin. I'm done. I finished. I am perfect. Because God made me perfect, right? So why would I struggle for sin? against sin. I'm perfect. I can't sin. Those are the people who take Romans chapter 7, which says the things that I want to do, I don't do the things that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. They all believe that that's Paul talking about his life before he became a believer. I don't believe that. First off, if it's true, I'm toast. (laughs) I am. And so are you. We're going to talk about being perfect. You're going to hate it. But it happens to be the last verse of this chapter. Be ye perfect. (gasps) But we also know the scripture clearly says that you and I continue to sin. Then what does it mean to be perfect? Well, I'll give you a hint since we won't get there for five more months. To be perfect doesn't mean that we're God. We're not good Mormons. You are not going to become a God. To be perfect means that we live a life of dependence upon God 
which is what we're called, what we are created to be. And the scripture says if we sin, we confess our sins and we we go sin more. And we confess it and we and that's the way we live our life of dependence upon God. From the day that we're, well, really from the day we're born, we just don't know it. From the day we become a believer till the day we die. We'll have a long discussion about that. What does it mean to hunger and thirst after righteousness? It means that we are more interested in becoming righteous than we are about who won the football game. Oh, no, I didn't say that. Forget that one then how I can get ahead in this world, how I can... Now, let's back... Let's, ah, that's a good point. I should use that. I'll tell you in just a moment. Not to say there's anything wrong with football games. Not to say there's anything wrong with food. Not to say there's anything wrong with fill in the blank. But remember where we started? When we hunger and thirst for something that distracts us from doing what we ought to do, that something becomes a sin. And that something, in moderation, in the level that God would have us to pursue it, may be fine. C.S. Lewis, in one of his books, you know, chastises, I mean, it's, a, it's an allegory, it's a story, this woman, because she has put her family ahead of God. And she's going, what's wrong with loving your family? You're supposed to love your family. That's right. But you're supposed to love God. When we pursue something beyond the bounds that God has prescribed, Now, what's the problem? There's just too many distractions in our lives. We have access to all the things that we need to make us righteous. We do. As I said earlier, we have the Word. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the community of believers. We have access to everything that we need to become righteous. But you know, I've got other things to do. I've got parts of my life that, you know, just, you have to attend to this. You know, if you don't do it, it's not going to get done, and I've got to do it. Whatever it is. To hunger and thirst after righteousness implies that you're not hungering and thirsting after something else. Next week, no, two weeks, we're going to talk about being pure in heart. Pure in heart is focus. Purity of heart means that I am focused on a single thing. Why do we not hunger and thirst after righteousness? Because we hunger after a lot of different things. Now, having said all that bad stuff, let me let you in on a little secret. Let's say that 
a four-year-old child, grandchild, great-grandchild, whatever it is, comes to you and says, give me a dollar. And you go, why? Why should I give you a dollar? I want to buy you a Christmas present. Now, my accounting brain kicks in and says, you know, this just doesn't really make much sense. And I turn to the child and say, how about if I just keep the dollar and we call it even? Okay? But we don't do that. Why do we not do that? Because we love the fact that the child is motivated to give us a gift. Why is this important? The verse says, hunger and thirst after righteousness. Hunger and thirst. It doesn't say that there was a time in the past where you hungered and thirsted and you were filled. It means today, hunger and thirst. Tomorrow, hunger and thirst. The next day, hunger and thirst. And the day after that, you get the picture, right? For some reason, God is satisfied that we just want to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Even if we don't fully obtain it in this life. He blesses the fact that we have the desire to hunger and thirst after righteousness. It doesn't mean we've arrived. I mean, at some point in my life, I'm going to go, ah, I made it. I'm perfect. All the sins are behind me. And then I'll be struck by lightning the next day. We're not going to do that. And that's the fascinating thing. We pray to God. God, give me a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And you know, God's sitting there thinking, I'd probably be better off just zapping you now and getting it over with. I mean, really. I mean, you're going to mess up tomorrow. I know it. I mean, all that foreknowledge stuff. I know what you're going to do. But God receives glory because we have the desire to hunger and thirst after righteousness. Why is this good? Because it gives us hope. Let me let you in on another secret. As you do progress in the Christian life, as you progress in righteousness, there are going to be times when you're going to be overwhelmed about how much, how far you are away from righteousness. In one sense, you'd be better off not starting. Because at least then you're ignorant. I've told you before, I was a math major. And I took ever-increasingly complex math classes And, you know, I was pretty good at it. But as I progressed, I realized how little math I knew. I was better off when I was ignorant and didn't know how little I knew. (laughs) So if you're going to rely on your feelings alone, you're probably going to be in trouble. Because as you progress in righteousness... God reveals to you the unrighteousness in your life, the unrighteousness in the world around you, and you, well, you're poor in spirit. You mourn for your sin. 
You are meek. You are humble and gentle. You know, the Pharisees are on this highway to righteousness, and by golly, they're looking at all the people behind them saying what bums they are. That's why Jesus says, you're not on the path to righteousness at all. God is going to receive glory when we desire to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Our lives will receive satisfaction to the extent that we pursue God and his righteousness above all else. Acknowledging the fact that we're not going to make it this side of eternity. And that was Diane's comment. If I am pursuing the righteousness of Christ, I am looking for the eternal more than what works today. You know, what's the easiest thing for me to do right now that will make my life easiest right now? And it'll probably be the wrong thing. That's why we always keep in our minds the glorification that is to come. That's the reward that we're going to receive. Now, one more aspect of hungering and thirsting after righteousness and we'll be done. Everything we've talked about here has to do with my righteousness, my justification where God declares me to be righteous, my sanctification where I work out that sanctification in my everyday life, my glorification that is in the future. And that's perfectly good and valid. That, I think, is what the passage is talking about. But it is interesting you can broaden it and Acknowledge the fact that we as believers are to work for righteousness in those around us. We are to hunger and thirst after righteousness in our families, in our church, in our community, and in the world as a whole. Knowing, knowing that all of that is not going to be accomplished until the end of time. But we can still rejoice when the righteous do well and mourn, two weeks ago's lesson, mourn when they don't. We are to pursue righteousness in the world around us. We'll actually have a long discussion about this when we get in a few verses down there to you are the light of the world and you are all the salt of the... That's what we're going to talk about. How we help pursue righteousness in the society around us. But that is another aspect of hungering and thirsting after righteousness. It's not just me, although that's very important. It is those around me, the broader circles around me, as we work on those ever-increasing circles of influence. And God uses us to accomplish that in the world today. <sighs> Acknowledging the fact that just like the child coming to me asking for a dollar, it's really God that's doing it all. So, blessed are the poor in spirit. They know they can't do it. They know they can't do it. And the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Blessed are they that mourn. They know they've sinned. We know we've sinned. It 
causes us intense grief, but we are promised that we will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, having acknowledged we can't do it, having mourned for our sins. How can we be anything but humble and gentle to those around us? That's hard because somebody does something really stupid, some sin in their lives, and our first desire is to line them up and let them have it until we acknowledge the fact that Jesus was gentle and meek with us. Oh, shoot. And having done that, we will receive the rewards in the new heaven and the new earth and the rewards in this earth also. But having acknowledged the fact that we're poor in spirit, we've got to fill that poverty with something and that something needs to be the righteousness of Christ. We are to hunger and thirst an intense desire to receive his righteousness. And the promise is, if you pursue it, he'll give it to you. Go read the book of Romans. Go read all of Paul's epistles. And on and on he talks about putting off, putting on, putting off the bad stuff, putting on the good stuff. All of that is the pursuit, the hunger and thirsting for righteousness. So don't be the person who hungers and thirsts after, well, fill in the blank with whatever the world promises you. Don't be the person who hungers and thirsts after nothing because we're just too apathetic and lazy to care. Ask God to give you a hunger and thirst and God will give you the dollar because he loves the fact that you'd have the desire to hunger and thirst. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the scripture that you have given us. Thank you for providing us with everything that we need to pursue righteousness. I pray, Lord, that we would, every moment of every day, pursue your righteousness. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.